Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Oddsport.com and Oddsport Magazine, I'm Stefan Mackley and this is the Oddsport National Podcast. It's Monday the 14th of June and on today's podcast we're talking about national racing in the UK. We're several weeks into the 2021 UK racing season and unlike last year there's been plenty to get excited about as a plethora of race meetings have been taking place featuring bumper grids and more recently crowds lining the banks. I'm Stefan Mackley, Oddsport's Deputy National Editor and joining me for today's podcast is Stephen Licorice, Autosport National Editor, and someone who's no stranger to the national racing scene, having covered the sport for more than 40 years, Marcus Pye. Guys, great to speak with you both. Um, thanks, obviously, very much for, for being on the podcast. Um, as I just said there, you know, obviously racing's been going for, you know, a couple of weeks now um, across the, the UK, um, you know, mainly in England. And over the last few weeks in particular, you know, we've seen fans finally lining the banks at race race meetings. You know, it's been long overdue. You know, people have been wanting to get back out for, you know, ever since the COVID-19 pandemic started last year. Um, Marcus, obviously, you know, you've been to, you know, a number of race meetings this year with and without fans. I mean, you know, from your point of view, it must be great to finally see fans lining the banks and, and you know, people back and enjoying themselves out in the sunshine. Very much so, Stefan. It's been very, very hollow over the last year or so uh, with uh, events running behind closed doors. But to actually get going again this year and uh, for the last couple of weekends, at least had spectators uh, on the banks, as you say, not in the paddocks by and large, but uh, on the banks uh, watching it just brings another dimension to the whole thing. It's better for really the competitors. They just love it. They they react to that. They love waving when they come around at the end of their races, etc. They like to be playing to an audience. And, um, you know, club racing is club racing. It's largely amateur. But at the end of the day, it's an empty kind of circuit experience without 
um, people to walk around and mill around in the paddock and and uh, and, and chat to about your cars about your racing people are interested there are fans out there and um, they're as hungry as the drivers to uh, get back to do it but two weeks ago at donnington with the classic sports car club we had 475 entries something like that we had quite a decent turnout of spectators on the banks particularly down through the Craner curves which was uh, is always a, a favorite spot to watch um and at cadwell park last weekend with the historic sports car club uh, it was just brilliant to see a lot of cars uh, lining the circuit, people standing out or, or sitting out on blankets with beautiful, beautiful sunshine. Uh, it, it really couldn't be better. And Stephen, um, I mean, as, as Marcus said, you know, it's great, you know, that, that obviously the spectators are back and, you know, seeing them lining the banks. Um, and as well as it being a social occasion, Club Mark Spot is very much a family orientated um, you know, sphere in a way. You know, people obviously want to come to the race meetings with the families and you know, for a lot of them, they've not been able to do that because of restrictions in the number of people allowed. So, you know, by having spectators actually allowed, you know, friends and families can actually come and see people race, you know, that they, they know and they want to support. And obviously, you know, you've been to a few race meetings where, you know, the, the spectators have, have been out and about. It really does make a difference to the competitors having those spectators there. I remember throughout the whole of last season at the British Touring Car Championship events, there were no spectators at all at those. And the drivers in the support series really noticed that. And it just said those meetings just didn't feel sort of special as they had done in the past. And now having the spectators back, it just makes some, so much of a difference. And as you were saying, with like the families of, of drivers being able to attend, and it just brings people sort of together so much more than what has been happening over the past year and it just really brings people together and makes such a big difference to those events um obviously at some club events there are not that a, a huge number of spectators uh lining the the grass banks and in some cases the the marshals are the sort of the main spectators for the drivers but just having the ability for fans to get out in the fresh air, see some motorsport again. It's it's a great step back towards some sort of normality. Uh, Stephen makes a fantastic point there about the family involvement in motorsport. Club sport is about families. And particularly at places like Castle Coombe and some of the other tracks where a lot of the racing has a strong uh, nucleus of local championships, it is important. At Castle Coombe, they've seen entries drop quite a lot over the last year or so uh, because of the number of restrictions. If you can't bring um, your wife and your kids because you can only bring yourself and your mechanic, whatever, or, or your husband and your kids maybe, whatever, and you can't invite um, all your relations to live locally, you'd sooner not do it. And we've seen that with competitors not running for a few meetings, but at the last meeting at uh, Castle Coombe uh, on Bank Holiday Monday, spectators are allowed back and suddenly the entries picked up in three of the four local um, uh, events. You know, the Formula Fords, um, the saloons, and the, and the hot hatches are strong. And when you've got sort of mid to high 20s in terms of entries, sometimes they go into the 30s, that's, that's really, really good. And that helps cover the costs of putting those meetings on. But spectators are important and families are important. And these days, it, increasingly, there's a lot of competition for for your weekend spend. You don't have to go uh, car racing, and and people vote with their feet. Back when I started, 
uh, reporting it kind of for autosport in the 70s, there was no Sunday trading. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't all barrel off to the local sh- uh, shopping mall or whatever. It's changed. The whole dynamic of the sport has changed. And this is just one element of it. You mentioned um, Castle Coombe there and, and obviously spectators obviously being able to get back to those events there. And um, all three of us had our say in the, the latest um, edition of the magazine, Autosport magazine. Um, you know, obviously with fans being able to go back to venues, you know, we've all picked basically our, you know, favourite spots to view from and, you know, mine was um, mine was Castle Coombe, and in particular Camp Corner, which is the the final corner. Um, you know, if you ever, you know, before the pandemic, every race meet without fail, that that and Quarry, you know, would be packed out. Um, I think I chose Camp in particular because it just you can, if you've never been, it's on the banking, and you can almost look down on the cars themselves as they approach the what's the final corner. And then after that, you can see them going along the start straight and up, basically what's known as the Avon Rise up into Quarry, um, you know, the other sort of the hot spot. Um, but as I said, so, you know, we've all had our say. I mean, what, what did you guys go for and sort of, you know, in particular, why did you choose these particular spots from well, racing circuits in the UK? I, too, am a great um, devotee of Castle Coo. My first went there in 1967 because one of my godfather's mates was racing his road-going um, Sprite or Midget. And it was absolutely brilliant. I was hooked on it. Um, but I had been hooked on it before when I was going to Crystal Palace as, as a, a small child. But the thing that got me back then, even though that particular day rained incessantly, uh, was the fact there was a um, an involvement uh, with, with the fans. And those days you saw the likes of John Chatham and Stuart Hands racing their Austin Healy 3000s, two great uh, aces in those big Healy's. Um, and even remember seeing the likes of, uh, of Brian Cutting, who was a, a bit of a local hero uh, in the saloons, and also Brian Thompson, who brought a, a Ford Mustang from Australia for the season just to come and play at club racing over here, which was just brilliant. But um, I actually, while I love any aspect of, of going to Castle Coombe and, and walking around the whole circuit, if I'm not, um, if I'm not commentating, I will walk. The, the wrong way round the track, if you like, um, and view a race from each of the vantage points, each of the corners, working back through Bobby's to Tower, um, to Old Paddock, and then back down to the S's and, and, and Quarry. Or sometimes I'll go with the cars, uh, go, go um, clockwise. But uh, that's good. But the one I chose uh, was St. Mary's at, um, at Goodwood. I went to Goodwood um, you know, once or twice as a as a child, and don't remember anything really of it because uh, it closed in 1966, and uh, I was eight then. Um, but at, at the end of the day, round the back where very few people tend to congregate, they're missing one of the greatest corners uh, in the UK and one of the most demanding in the world. Um, it's it's the corner. It's it's actually a complex of corners. It's 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 a very very fast right hander, and then an off camber left. Uh, which makes it very, very tricky. You've got to get the car organized from the point where you turn in uh, to optimize your line through the corner to carry speed. And um, I've seen some some phenomenal driving through there. I, I went back to, to, to John Surtees in a Ferrari GTO, I and mean, you can't get too much better than a, a 62-shaped uh, GTO uh, and the 64 world champion uh, coming through there. But his, his whole technique was just sublime, uh, sublime through there. And I think to you, when you when you watch there for the duration of a meeting, I've commentated out the back the last couple of years. Um, you appreciate the different 
dynamics of the cars, the front wheel drive, the rear wheel co- uh, drive cars, the more powerful cars, the less powerful cars. And it, and it is just brilliant to watch. But um, I, I just remember going back to a, a test day in 79 or 80 with Tiger, um, Tim Schenken and Howden Ganley's um, equipe. And um, James Weaver was there at that point, yet to be a kind of IMSA um, sports car star or whatever. And um, he was there and uh, with, with Ian Taylor, the late Ian Taylor. And um, also there was Andy Rouse, who was a, a very, very good Formula Fordster before he became a multiple uh, British saloon car champion. And Andy Rouse was going to have a go in Ian Taylor's Sports 2000 Tiger. And he had a go around in it. And he was, you know, not very comfortable with uh, the St. Mary's kink. The one before it where Sterling Moss had his massive accident on Easter Monday 62. And then this transition into this off-camber left. And um, we were watching all from the, from the old fire tower there where the country box is. And there's Ian Taylor and myself and, and James Weaver. And James said blithely, oh, he said, I can take that flat in top. So we said to say, "You're all right then." So, um, so Ian flagged um, Ian flagged uh, Andy Rouse uh, down, um, and Andy Rouse stopped with any people there. So it was not a problem to do that just that. And they swapped over, and um, and and James sort of went off. He, he'd been racing in Sports Two Thousand. Anyway, he um, he arrived on his very first lap, absolutely flat. And you could hear there was not even the slightest change in pitch of the engine. Uh, and you could see where the throttle springs were on the carburetor, and it was just kind of wedged on the floor. And he flipped it into the right-hander, didn't use any road, which you, you, you mustn't use lots of road on the right-hander. And furthermore, went through the off-camber left in top as well, which we'd not seen before. And we were just gobsmacked. Andy Rouse thought at that point, I think I'll stick to saloons. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's it's not a slow corner, is it at all? And there's there's very little room for you know for runoff. Um, so no, yeah, no, no, it, it, but it doesn't take great to watch from. Yeah, it is. It doesn't take prisoners. But um, you know, having been to Cabell Park at the weekend, you go out to the exit of Charlie's, where the the, the second commentary box is. There, it's an amazing place to watch. But the best place at Cadwell is the Hall Bends. Uh, and it's it's very very close to the paddock as well, so you can just sort of walk along behind the the restaurant, uh, and you're in this amazing sort of flick flack of of corners. You've got a sort of slight right kink, a, a cambered left, a right, a left, and then the right to take you back down to barn and onto the main straight. And when you see the top guys going through there, it literally is heart in mouth viewing, and you've got this wonderful noise of the. Uh, of the engines reverberating off the trees. And that in itself takes me back to some of the, the hill climbs that I went to back in the late 1960s, going to Great Auckland near Reading um, once a year was an extraordinary place. And the the bigger, um, faster cars, the, the, the sound of their engines barking off the trees on this private estate were just amazing. And, and what's brilliant is that... Um, Guy who lives locally to there is um, is writing a book um, about Great Auckland that uh, I think staged its very first event just before World War Two, and then came back strongly and, and became a round of the British Hill Climb Championship until it closed in 1974. 
Yeah, no, some great places to, to obviously view, you know, from racetracks in the um, in England. And I mean, Stephen, I think your choice was, you know, a bit further afield in, in, in Scotland, wasn't it? And I think, yeah, I won't say you cheated, um, but instead of picking one corner, you've just, you've just picked a circuit, haven't you? you know, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have many corners, but but yeah, you've, you've gone for an entire circuit, haven't you, to, to view from? Yeah, definitely. As you say, um, Not Hill is it's a great place to spectate from. And the reason why I didn't pick out a specific corner is because there's so many great places to watch from all the way around the circuit. It's one of those tracks where you can get really, really close to the action. Uh, for example, at the at the final hairpin, you, you, you feel like you're just right on top of the cars just in front of you. And it, that's a great view. And then also you can watch the cars go through the the first corner at Duffer's Dip and they're obviously also really spectacular through the, the chicane and the the undulation changes around the, the track make it mean that from almost any vantage point you can see sort of two or three different corners and because it's such a short lap as Stefan mentioned uh, you don't have to wait long for the cars to come around again but before <laughs> you see them again on the next lap. My vantage point was at Duffer's Dip when um um, a, a, chap, uh, um, a chap, I think it was a Japanese guy, hit me from behind and went over the top of me. So I saw the sort of the, the kind of wooden floor of this um, of this Formula Vauxhall go over the top. And because they were so strongly built, um, thanks to Adrian Reynard's design with the honeycomb planks down the side of it, um, neither car was damaged. We just continued to glide as if nothing had happened. It was quite something. But the Jim Clark S's there are fantastic, uh, as you say, just just amazing. And you can carry so much speed through them if you're on the right line. We used to do some instruction there with um, the Mercedes-Benz days, which used to travel the country. And they were run by Gray Headley, who's father, uh, father of James, who's doing brilliantly in the uh, in Formula 4 uh, right now. And um, if you had sort of a, uh, a Billy, as they were called, the, the, the Billy Bunter, the punter, who was sort of showing expertise in the car and, and getting quicker, the best plan at the end of the day, if you had a sort of a, a small kind of SLK with a powerful engine, whatever, is you let the driver drive as fast as they could, effectively. And you just screamed at them, throttle, brake, throttle, brake. And you, you did the gears yourself from the passenger seat. The little auto box, you just flicked it like a paddle shift. Uh, so it was just brilliant fun to, to coach people to go quicker uh, round the circuit. And they just got absolutely, they were blown away by it. And quite a lot of them became race fans. They used to go then to... Uh, knock hill to watch and that's what it's all about engaging people bringing them to the events you've got a good view a good track and good facilities and of course you can stand at the airpin at uh, and knock hill with the with your bridey in your hand and uh, um, and a can of iron brew or whatever and um, uh, happy days the, the sort of point worth making about knock hill is considering the the travel restrictions that are in place at the moment we don't know what sort of European or worldwide travel is going to be possible later in this year? Why not, instead of going abroad, why not make a trip up to Scotland and make Not Hill part of that trip? Um, because it is, as Mark has said, a really, really great place to, to spectate from. And it's, and it's licensed to, uh, to be raced on both ways, which yes. is like, unique in the... Um... <laughs> yeah, there's not not many other tracks that can do that, and um, obviously you know stunning stunning scenery as well with with where it's located. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean obviously with people you know with restrictions being lifted and people wanting to get out and about. I mean you know the weather we've had recently over the last couple of weeks has been fantastic. You know, I would urge people to you know to make the you know the most of these um, you know chances to get out now and and you know visit these venues. I mean. Um, 
I think that, you know, the, there are obviously restrictions on the venues until I believe, well, hopefully the 21st of June, whether obviously everything is lifted by then, you know, who's to say. Um, but certainly great to see, you know, fans, you know, fans back and flocking to the venues and, you know, that demand there. Um, and great to see as well that Motorsport finally is returning to Wales after, I mean, it's been, if, you know, if, you, if you're based in Wales and a Motorsport fan, it's been perhaps sort of the worst time in, in the history of, you know, Welsh Motorsport, really. Um, only recently has, has racing been allowed to take part, uh, sorry, to, to restart. Um, uh, you know, and it sort of kind of came out of nowhere, didn't it, Stephen? I mean, we, you know, we were hearing all the time that whereas in England and Scotland, the restrictions were being lifted and racing was starting again, Wales just, you know, wouldn't entertain the idea, basically. And then all of a sudden it was, yeah, you can go racing and, you know, we can have, I think, is it four, 4,000 fans that can, you know, spectators that can come. And, you know, in, in many ways, that's caught organisers on the hop. So from being annoyed that they couldn't hold anything, they're annoyed now that they weren't given any prior notice real long-running saga the, the issue of motorsport restarting in wales to sort of recap the situation uh after uh motorsport began in in england in july last year uh there was no motorsport at all in wales last year except for one small trial meeting that took place at anglesey with the 750 motor club other than that the welsh government um never relaxed its rules concerning events and that meant um most sport was never able to to restart and obviously we, we talk about the sort of circuit racing side of things but rallying is absolutely huge in in wales so it was a bitter blow that there was no motorsport at all and it was a similar story this year as well whilst uh, things got underway um in england at the start of april still there was no sign of anything changing in Wales. And then as Stefan says, um, there's still no indications that there would be an improvement in the situation. And that led to um, organisers cancelling or rescheduling events planned for June. And then suddenly we recently had this announcement from the Welsh government where we went from one extreme to the other, where previously you couldn't have more than 50 people at a, a sort of gathering. Now they can have unlimited participants and 4,000 spectators. So considering how much sort of effort has been put in trying to convince the various officials to change their mind and realise that that most sport can take place safely, as has been proven in England over the past year almost, um, now that's finally happened. So there's finally some, some good news, albeit frustration that fairly recently a couple of events were cancelled that could now actually take place given the, the sudden change of heart but at least we're now in this position where for the first time in over 15 months motorsport can actually happen in all corners of of the uk which is obviously a really really positive thing what we don't know now is the the long sort of long-term impact of the lack of motorsport in wales in particular um obviously for organizers uh, booking uh, events at wales it's difficult for them to make that commitment considering that there was <laughs> there, there were no events last year so it remains to be seen what the sort of long-term impact is but at least now in the short term uh, events can restart again what what gets me of course it's a much wider issue than just motorsport isn't it i mean motorsport uh in wales um at, uh, at pembrey in the south and anglesey in the north uh at trackmon um two super venues um but it's the it's the spend 
that those events attract. Um, and local economies rely to a very large extent, particularly in somewhere like Wales, where you don't have big um, population centres, etc., to to bring people into B and Bs and to restaurants and to pubs, etc. And you know, we know it's been incredibly difficult for everybody in in that hospitality sector. But the, it's the not knowing that's that's the, the that's the worst thing, isn't it? But what also gets me is that you've got this um, a situation coming up where you've got the European football um, championships coming up tournament. Um, I'm not a great football fan. I'm certainly not an epidemiologist. Um, otherwise, I'd have been doing something different for the last forty-four years. Um, but what amazes me is that at a race meeting, you can hide a few thousand people over. I don't know, 350 acres or whatever it is at a you know, average race circuit campus. Uh, but suddenly you can put 40,000 people socially distanced in inverted commas into Wembley to um, to watch the latter stages of the or the stages of the Europeans. Uh, and they're all, relatively speaking, um, cooped in together. But it's not just that. It's the it's the traveling between the countries, etc. I think it's 11 countries or 11 venues or whatever that are being used. and um, I, I can't see how they can justify these uh, these things to to the wider world. Yeah, it's it, it's it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, in many ways, I feel sort of these events are, are trial runs. I mean, I I know um, a couple of about a month ago now, obviously the final of the snooker world championships at the Crucible in Sheffield, and um, I think that was the same weekend that British GT was on, and that was I think one of the first weekends when spectators were allowed back to venues and. Um, but even so, there was, you know, there was and remains a limit on how many people could could go in. Obviously, this massive, you know, area of outdoor space, and then you get back to the hotel room and switch on the TV, and you see people shoulder to shoulder wearing masks, sat in a confined space. And I, again, I know it was a trial, sort of, you know, to to see if these things were going to work, and um, you know, from a logical point of view. But it is it is a bit a bit of a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it, for motorsport fans, knowing that there's all this empty space outside and yet there is a limit on, um, you know, being able to go to venues. I mean, as I think Stephen pointed out earlier on, you know, some of these venues aren't going to get thousands of people, you know, tens of thousands, but at the same time, you know, some of them will. Um, and obviously as you mentioned as well, Marcus, it's, it's also impacting the local economy, um, as well, restaurants, pubs, hotels, you know, the lack of, uh, turnover that they're getting as well. It all has a knock on effect. Um, and I guess, like Stephen, you mentioned that the, the the big thing we don't know is the impact that obviously all of this is going to have in motorsport in general. Um, but I think, in particular, in Wales, I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Anglesey and Pembury have invested large sums of money over the last couple of years on you know new infrastructure at circuits. You know, they'll have been doing that with the the, the long term plan of obviously getting so much turnover each year, and obviously for them to basically lose all revenue over the last fifteen months. Um, you know, I imagine further down the line, there's going to have to be some hard decisions to be made at some point, you know, su- surrounding that and, and, and the racing there. Pembury uh, decided they built some new garages there and they, they were ready for the start of the 2020 season, but still haven't been used. They've just sat there idle because they've not had the chance to organise these events. And Anglesey also had some plans for some sort of redevelopment of the the circuit but that's all had to be put on hold because there's just so much uncertainty so as you say it's obviously affecting the the circuits themselves and the the local area and we'll we'll just have to see what happens over the the sort of coming few months and and years even 
in terms of a the virus situation and b the the economic situation as well and at this point in time it's it's too difficult to to really know what the end of position will be i i saw motorsport from a different perspective on um on wednesday this week uh, i went to pool pirates uh, speedway and i've never been to a speedway event before they have by and large they have two wheels too few for my liking but um at the end of the day it was an absolutely cracking evening and they worked so so hard to make sure it happened i mean probably the main grandstand the open grandstand was half full and we sat my daughter and myself uh, in the opposite side of the grandstand, in an enclosed grandstand at a table behind a glass wall, etc. You know, all very comfortable. No catering, but that was just part of the deal for this one round. It's been 19 months since they uh, staged an event there. And who should turn up and be interviewed on the PA but Mark Webber, um, who is a big motorcycle fan. His father was in the business and... Um, he um, he went down and was uh, was chatting about it. There were a couple of three Aussies uh, riding um, in the uh, in the Paul Pirates event against uh, Berwick Bandits, um, and Paul Pirates have had to come down from the kind of the Premier League to um, to the sort of Championship League, if you like to use that football parlance. But it was a cracking evening sport. It was all filmed uh, streamed on um, uh, one of the uh, channels. Fifteen short fallout races crammed into two hours everyone went away happy it was still light and um, it was a just a, a, a sensational evening's entertainment uh, and, and well worth the 30 quid it cost for the two of us to go i mean uh, not something i want to do um every month but um nonetheless i'd go again a bit like drag racing you go drag racing at santa pod and provided you've got weather with you pretty much guaranteed um, a, a pretty exciting uh, day out. Um, I've not been for too many years now, and I really must go again. But if you guys have not been, make the effort um, when there's a moment, because, um, well, you, you, you just cannot experience that kind of raw um, raw power, raw action anywhere else on the planet, I'm sure, unless you're probably going to go up in a, in a skyrocket somewhere. Yeah, I've, I've not had the chance to go, but I, Stephen, you have, haven't you? And you, you've said that it's just, I guess watching it from TV, sort of, oh, well, the, you know, it's, you don't get, the, you just don't get the same experience, I imagine, do you? It's the smell and the noise and the sound, isn't it? From what, from what you've sort of described as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, as Marcus is saying, it's completely unlike anything else that you can go to and it's just the whole round sort of sensory experience from the the noise the look of the cars and the the smell indeed uh, uh, as well and yeah as we're sort of saying as things are opening up and it's it's great to sort of experience all these different forms of of motorsport as marcus was mentioning with with the speedway as well there's so much uh, so many different disciplines on offer to people and it's um especially as now you can't be sort of traveling abroad so much why not go to a variety of different events here in in the uk because there are so many it's an interesting point because you only have to uh, travel around the motorways on a on a sunday evening or maybe a friday afternoon uh, prior to an event and if you count the number of trailers you see or transporters and and the number of open trailers actually these days with sort of um a rally cross car a rally uh, a rally car um uh, motorcycle sort of scrambling or whatever it may be there's so much there that you can see and there's short oval racing etc and you think where have they all come from and there's something for all of them to do uh, but it's um it's uh, i i think the opportunity should be seized if, if the last year has taught us anything it's to live for today 
And if there's something you've always thought about going to see uh, on the motorsport front but haven't quite got round to, go because it may not be the same this time next year or in five years' time. Seize the opportunity while you can. I mean, this this past uh, 15 months now, isn't it, since the, the pandemic, but, you know, I'm sure you guys will agree, but it, it really does make you appreciate you know what's on offer not just from a motorsport perspective but i guess sort of life as a whole but from a motorsport perspective you know just the plethora of events that you know we've got in this country you know from everything from race circuits to rally into trials british hill climb you know everything drag drag racing as we've said you know everything you know there's there's so many different events that you know people have the opportunity to go to and, and as you say marcus you know you know we should you know, we should be, I guess, celebrating and making the most of these um, events, you know, while while we can, because, you know, you just never know what's sort of around the corner, I guess. Um, you know, I mean, it's probably fair to say, I mean, you know, I, I dare say since the Second World War, British motorsport hasn't been hit so hard as over the last 15 months, you know. You know, basically it was cancelled, wasn't it, for, for all of six months, near enough. Um, and only, as we've said now, in Wales, it's starting to, you know, get back going again. And I mean, you know, in that vast period of time, obviously, British national motorsports changed massively. And I mean, um, Marcus, obviously, you know, you've, you've been involved with the sport for, you know, a number of decades. I mean, you know, from, from how it was sort of 30, 40 years ago, I mean, is it sort of night and day now, sort of how things have changed with, you know, how things are run with the clubs? Obviously, I guess, I'm guessing there's more choice for competitors now and, and teams than, than there was previously. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of events, uh, as we've said, but I think it, it has changed. It's changed fundamentally, but there are still old school uh, events that you can go to. Things like the Hill Climb Championship, um, which started in 1947 uh, in this country, although it was, you know, I think from 1905 at Chelsea Walsh, uh, there was hill climbing. It has changed in terms of the vehicles that are taking part in the way the events run, uh, etc. But it, it's it's kind of more than that. Um, I was counting only this morning the number you mentioned the number of decades. Yes, um, I've been reporting these sort of things over six decades: seventies, eighties, nineties, noughties, teens, and now the twenties, uh, which doesn't make me uh, all that old. I look back to the days when I was going um, to um, club racing, occasionally in the sixties and occasionally to the Grand Prix uh, in the sixties at Silverstone, um, particularly. Uh, and Brands Hatch in the 70s too, you see a massive change. You don't see old converted coaches anymore with sort of you know, really, really grotty things you need sort of tetanus jabs to go within six feet of, and out of the back rolls are what they euphemistically refer to as a special saloon. Now, believe me, nobody loves a special saloon like I do, except for the fact looking back to the 70s and seeing some of the contraptions that people strapped themselves in with a bit of bent gas pipe as a roll cage, etc., and they were anything but special. The racing was fantastic back then, and but a very different type of meeting. In fact, I, I pulled out just today, just, just like there. There's the very first Thruxton event that I went to, 28th of October, 1973. Uh, and Marcus Simmons will tell, turn around and say, oh, I went before that, whatever, and, and great. But in those days, there were six races at one day. That's the British Automobile Racing Club Championship Finals at Thruxton. There were six races. And it was, you know, a, a fantastic day out. But that's just 12 track sessions. There was prize money of kind of 15 quid or something for winning your race or whatever. Prize money these days um, is, is very few and you know, very few and far between. The paddock then was sort of a pretty rough uh, old place. And now it's beautiful and really, really um, fills up well. When you go now to a, a classic sports car club, then what you do is you see 
effectively a flashback to the 1970s, a, a paddock filled with diverse cars of all types. And it's probably the most diverse of any if you go to CSCC stuff. Um, and, and it's it's really wonderful to see. But the whole dynamic has changed in that the Touring Car Championship, the Toka package, etc., has kind of focused um, a lot of the, the, the major events, the major teams, the major spend, etc., and it has its you know package of support races, um, but the clubs involved with that. I mean, that's, that's a BARC type promotion. But the BARC's own meetings are are relatively sparse in comparison to that. And BRSCC as well has has kind of become a little bit more random. In in a way, people within club racing often refer to them as sort of uh, their championships as kind of graveyard championships in that they are scooping up. Um, various sort of one-make type cars that have nowhere else to race. Um, and it's good that they do. CSCC is very inclusive. It's it's a fantastic opportunity for ter- anything from the 1950s in, in um, what do they call the, the Mintex um, Classic K, right through to cars that were made last Thursday. Um, and whereby... We'd all like to see lots and lots of great racing for Lotus Cortinas and, and tire smoking Mini Coopers, etc. But they're all they're all new builds these days and, and, and very expensive to be done. They don't cock their wheels like when Jim Clark and Graham Hill and Jack Sears used to drive the Lotus Cortinas or John Rose used to sort of smoke his way around Brands Hatch in a Cooper S. Um, but things have become so much more professional, ergo that much more expensive, that there is a wider split between the sort of the haves and the have-nots. The club racing end of it is still great with 750 Motor Club as well, putting on some superb races. Uh, but these days, the clubs buy into the circuit higher, and that circuit higher fee um, in line with the facilities at most of the circuits. And Jonathan Palmer does a magnificent job with MSV because all the circuits are beautifully manicured, and that's really important. You can take You can take... Um, your family, or you could take your elderly mother or whatever to uh, a race meeting there and know that they'll feel it's a hospitable place that's been nicely cared for. Uh, in the old days of the Thruxtons and um, uh, and probably Clandows and, and places like that in South Wales, and that went out of use in the early 70s, they were pretty rough old airfields that in the States they describe as podunk, which means kind of shitty and out in the sticks. These days, you've got better facilities, but they come at a cost. And um, that cost is reflected in what the, the organising clubs pay, and they pay tens of thousands of pounds a day in for some of the uh, of the better venues. And to amortise that cost against the number of competitors who are not only able but willing to pay for that privilege is becoming more difficult. Um, if you're looking at sort of I don't know five or six or seven hundred pounds for a race entry at Brands Grand Prix Circuit or Silverstone Grand Prix Circuit or somewhere like that, um, for the average man in the street, the average, probably the younger enthusiast, that's out of their uh, price range. The dynamic of the competitors that um, has changed. Uh, there's a a lot more, um, com- many more competitors now in their in their fifties and sixties and seventies, almost even in their eighties. Um, who are who are competing? And of course, they've they've had their commercial lives, their business lives. They've made their money, and they're and they're spending their money, and they're dotage doing something fantastic. But to try to entice the 
younger competitor into the the sport um, is becoming more difficult because the cars that their their fathers and grandfathers might still have that they raced 40 years ago are probably now got an enormous value um, and so probably it's not wise to uh, to run them um, but there's no such thing as really cheap motorsport. There's no cheap single-seater formula as such. I mean, people said that Formula First was was a sort of cheap thing, but they were cheap and nasty. Um, in the days, in old days, when you could buy a, a, a Formula Ford car for sort of 1,500 quid or something like that and go racing, you could see a way into the sport. And when I was racing early on in the 1980s, um, with um, Clive Woods Van Diemen at, um, uh, at Thruxton and Alton Park in 81. Um, you know, in those days, it was relatively inexpensive to do. Now, if you're in that early stage of a career path, I was never on a career path, I was always an enthusiast, um, you drive a, uh, a, a modern uh, spec single-seater, which if you knock a corner off it or a nose cone or a wing or whatever, you're into thousands of pounds to fix. Um, in the days when we knocked nose cones and radiators off things, it was probably 75 quid, patch up the nose cone and refinish it for the next weekend, um, get the radiator repaired and off you'd go again. It wasn't, it, it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that you have a shunt one weekend and be out the next. These days, you need a big technical team behind you um, and the, the cost of that the manpower um, is is enormous. So I, th- I think that if there was uh, a, a message to to get young people from karting, at which the top strata of competitors spend more money than a lot of the guys in the lower end of the uh, of the club racing scene, anyway, but something to get the the the, the dad and lass or dad and la- uh, dad and lass or dad and lad team into racing, it would be to try to devise some kind of inexpensive car in which to do it um and those days maybe they are available in in some kind of um some outlets but um i think if you want to start another uh, start a kind of a, a a ladder of opportunity going into something like historic formula ford or classic formula ford classic formula fords you can buy somewhere in the probably in the teens in terms of thousands of pounds the historic ones the best ones are in the 30s and that's a very, very long way from buying some piece of used rolling stock that was perfectly serviceable, just been outmoded, um, and would get you racing, in some cases, 20 or 30 uh, times a year. There was always a race for a Formula Ford car. These days, um, it's more difficult. Uh, I think your you point about um, affordable single-seaters and um you know something that is i guess an entry level for people to get into is you know is it's not cheap and as we've said you know motorsport isn't cheap it's you know it can be relatively cheap but it's still expensive but i mean um steven you know there's a lot of series around at the minute where it i guess in a way it's trying to become entry level and as cheap as possible you know i'm thinking the uh, c1 challenge uh, the bricc city car cup um you know to some people they might you know you might look and think well it's not a racing car it's a road car you know, that you can get on the track. But at the same time, you know, it is a gateway to actually, be, you know, get into racing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think there is there's starting to be a sort of realisation among some of the clubs that, that what they've in the past considered as cheap entry-level motorsport isn't actually cheap 
entry-level motorsport and they're now sort of looking at ways that they can encourage new people in at a less expensive uh, price whether that's this sort of increasing shift towards sort of mini enduro races where you can share the costs with another driver makes it that bit more affordable particularly when it's open to a wide range of different cars Um, and there are still sort of championships out there that are still at the lower end of the spectrum for example uh, f1000 is a single seater series that is lower budget but as we've sort as marcus has said many many of the series out there do still require significant financial commitment and you only have to sort of look at the paddock of even some of the smallest club meetings you will still see really expensive motorhomes massive transporters that just wouldn't have been there in, in in decades gone by you wouldn't have had that sort of money at these even these smallest meetings and it's it's sort of you need to go back to basics sometimes and go back to the, the sort of core element of just going racing for as little money as possible yeah, yeah. you're absolutely remember that yeah, yeah you're absolutely right Stephen. and formula 100 f100 whatever is a a really super series it's friendly um it, it kind of it doesn't run in the public eye, really, um, with the 750 Club, but it has a good home there. Um, there's a lot of very good PR builds up around it, some good drivers. Monoposto Racing Club. I mean, Monoposto Club started in 1958, and that still um, runs along very nicely with a, a, a pretty strong core of people who've been doing it year after year after year. Clubman's Racing, again, much the same. It's a bit split these days, but um, you can still get a, a B-class Clubman's car with a Formula Ford engine in it um, pretty inexpensively. And um, I, I suspect that there are people who perhaps don't realise that, um, that there is that they are uh, available um, and it's a, a friendly bunch of people to be with. But I think that, um, yeah, the clubs have to realise uh, to, to survive that they've got to put um, – they've got to – put cars on grids because the costs are going up and up and up to them and as i say it's always been that the the competitor has to pay at the end of the day and and it's rightly so you know etc but back in the day when the clubs would also bring several thousand people through the gate um and make some money uh, through the turnstiles every weekend and selling burgers or whatever it was going to be at their concession stands um that's not quite such the case these days. As you say, people turn up in their, their – some competitors turn up in their gin palaces, um, and um, it's, uh, it, it's, still, it's still good uh, in part, but, um, and there's still some not so good. But um, it's a great world out there if people, tend, if people want to access it and, and go to the trouble to do it um, and, and go in for the right reasons. I've seen too many – Young drivers and their parents, particularly, disappointed because because um, because Fred or Susie is going to be a Formula One driver, and they've just bought this really um, you know this this super little Formula whatever whatever it is car. We're going to do it, and we've just taken a big mortgage out, and we've and we bought this car. We've invested a hundred grand in it, whatever the deal is, um, and then you find that a year later they're pretty much on the scrap heap and it's all gone wrong. I think that aspirations are, are, are quite dangerous uh, in a lot of cases. Yes, we know who's going to come through. It'll be the people who spend the money from carting into cars by and large. But be realistic about it. Um, there's a lot of people out there who have been racing for fun for 30, 40 years 
and they'll continue to race for fun. They don't want they want to worry about whether they're going to win a trophy or whether they win twenty five quid or whatever it's going to be. It's irrelevant. They're out there with like minded people having a laugh and actually enjoying what they do. And you see that with some of the classic Formula Ford guys at Cabell Park last weekend, people like Stuart Kestenbaum, who must have done, I bet he's done a thousand Formula Ford races over the years. And he's had a few bangs and he's been over a few times. And um, it's kind of part of the game, really. Um, you bounce back and uh, if you didn't want to do it, you wouldn't do it. But uh, opportunities to be, to be seized for sure. And uh, I say that last this last year or so has, I think, focused the minds of pretty much the entire motorsport community um, on trying to find a way forward. That's a good point, Marcus. I mean, um, I know from speaking to a few clubs over the last 12 months that uh, I guess at no point before have they all had to work together as much in order, I guess, to survive because of obviously the pandemic. Um, I mean, if you think about it, obviously all these clubs are, are, are vying for as many customers as they can. And in many ways, I guess that they're, they're trying to, almost steal customers from each other, you know, with, with new series. And I mean, it's, it's great from a certain point of view because it means that competitors have so much choice, you know, of different series of joining different clubs. Obviously on the, the other side of that, we're finding, you know, we've written many times before me and Stephen and obviously you as well, Marcus, you know, that there's too many grids, there's too much choice. And that in, in many ways, that's, kind of the problem with why, you know, grid grids are struggling for some series because it's the same, you know, it's the same series with a slightly different regulation. And what it's doing is it's just splitting the, you know, the driver base sort of two or even three ways. But as I say, with the COVID-19 pandemic, clubs have almost had to put, you know, their self-interest aside because the only way they're going to be able to survive is by working together. Um, so that's, I guess, a, you know, a positive to come out of. <laughs> to come yeah, out of. You, you're absolutely right, Stefan. I mean, you know, back when I was um, knocking around in the late 70s as, a, as an enthusiast, and I started as an enthusiast, um, I went on to Marshall, I went on to, um, to report, to commentate, but all the way through my interest, which has been lifelong, I've just been an enthusiast first and foremost. Um, but... Looking back at the clubs that were around in the 70s, a lot of the stuff was was promoted by the BARC, uh, based at Thruxton, with, with Graham White um, uh, pretty much in charge of all that down there at that point. Um, BRSCC, that was sort of more brands-orientated, and of course had that amazing nucleus of things like Champion of Brands Formula Ford that ran at pretty much every meeting down there, uh, and brought a lot of people in, a lot of fans in as well. And you had the BRDC, that was organising race meetings, principally at Silverstone, but it would have a, uh, occasionally a Mallory or a Donington or something like that thrown in. They were the three main players. You had people like HSCC, Historic Sports Car Club, started in 1966. They came in and they were taking grids or subscribing to a grid within one of the other clubs' um, um, programmes, effectively. Same with the 750 Motor Club, which has now become a really big player uh, in the field. Um, Monoposto used to buy into uh, to, to grids, etc. But apart from that, you used to also have um, the more popular um, or, or the, the, the local clubs that had bigger memberships could actually do something on a national scale. Nottingham Sports Car Club was really successful and ran events all over in the north, in the Midlands, etc. In particular, in particular. 
But while the BARC and BRCC had regional centres that were put on their Alton Parks and their Lydon Hills and uh, Snettertons, etc., there were clubs like the Bentley Drivers Club, the Aston Martin Owners Club, uh, Peter Motor Club was another one, um, Sunback, which was a Sutton Coldfield-based um, club, uh, and then eight clubs, which was a, a group of um, organisations, it suggests, who would every year have um, a day at Silverstone. And they put on their own um, racing event. They'd hire Silverstone for the day and do it. All that's pretty much gone. Yes, um, Bentley Club and, uh, and AMOC still continue, but the the whole essence of, of motoring has changed from the days when really good handy mechanics in local garages would tinker with carburetors and, and, and fit a, a, a hotter camshaft into your BMC or Ford engine um, for, for the enthusiasts who'd tear around on the roads in their Cooper S's and, and, and hotted up Cortinas or Escorts or Anglias uh, or Midgets, wherever it may be. That's all changed because these days you don't really have tuning. Yes, you have tuning for your Evos and your Cosworths and bits and pieces, but the average car, the average production car that you buy, um, you don't tweak the cam, whatever. You probably put a different ECU in or something like to give you more power if that's what you want to do. But it's very much a, a throwaway kind of mentality in that you replace a module or whatever and people are very happy with what they've got those who want to have a fast car have a fast car and they they do these strange things with Nissan skylines and give them 900 horsepower or mitsubishi evos and they have 850 horsepower for about three laps um and then it goes pop again um in the days when you could run your road car uh, with the support of a local garage mechanic, or you, you became a, a, a self-taught mechanic, you could take it to do autocross, production car trials, circuit races, sprints, hill climbs. And that one car, your shopping car, enabled you to fulfill anything you wanted uh, within racing. You could even take it abroad and go and do go and do an event at the Nürburgring, not, not unheard of back in the 1960s, not now. Hopefully we're now, you know, we're on the right side of, um, you know, the COVID pandemic and, you know, things can, can start to get back to some normality. But, you know, as we've said over the last, you know, 45 minutes, great to have um, fans back out. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to see many more of you at, you know, the venues over the next couple of months and, um, you know, more of these events can, can take place. Guys, thank you very much for your time as ever. It's always appreciated. But before we go, here's what you can see right now on Odd Sport Plus. Jake Boxall leg looks at the human costs to replacing Formula 1's cancelled rounds. In MotoGP, Louis Duncan writes about why Quattararo's Catalonia suit penalty highlights a wider issue. And F1 legend Pat Simmons discusses how Formula 1 can predict car performance with timing loops every 200 metres around each circuit. We think it's the best motorsport writing out there, but judge for yourself with half-price access. New subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment go to autosport.com forward slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page then use promo code podcast for that 50% discount thanks for listening today we'll be back soon with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.